Uh, folks, we are in John chapter uh, 7 uh, tonight, and we're going to take a look at a passage beginning in verse uh, 25, John chapter 7, verse 25. I hope, uh, I hope this is helpful to you. It surely was to me as I had the privilege of looking at the text this week. Here's what it says, uh, John 7, verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill. If you've been tracking with us in John, you know John has um, identified three different people groups for us. One, they're referred to as the Jews. I told you a more accurate translation is the Judeans. It was the Jewish religious leadership operating in the capital of Judea, Jerusalem. When it says the Jews, in most cases in John's gospel, it's not talking about the people as a whole, it's talking about their religious leaders. That's one group. A second group consisted of um, um, the multitude of pilgrims who were in Jerusalem at this time. It's the time of one of the pilgrim feasts known as the Feast of Tabernacles. So these are Jewish people who, according to the law, were to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. This is one of those occasions. They came from all over the place. So you have the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. You have this group of multitude of pilgrims. And then the third group is the one identified here, the people of Jerusalem. These were Jews who were permanent residents. They were locals, permanent residents of Jerusalem. So this people group say, isn't is not this, they're pointing to Jesus, is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? Which group is seeking to kill him? The Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. The residents of Jerusalem knew of their intent, their malice, their antagonism. Uh, they knew that their religious leaders had hatched a plot to arrest, try, and murder Jesus. They knew this. And the others, visitors to that locale, didn't know it. In fact, in the uh, last few verses we looked at last week, they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed when he announced that they're going to kill him. See, they were outsiders. They didn't know of the plot of their own religious leaders. And so when Jesus said, yeah, they're going to kill me, uh, they said, who's trying to kill you? Are you demon-possessed? But these are the residents of Jerusalem who are in the know, they know that their own Jewish religious leaders want to kill this radical rabbi Jesus. Why? Because he did stuff on the Sabbath, which was contrary to their expectation. In one occasion in Jerusalem, he healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. Then he told the man to pick up his stuff, pick up his bed and walk away. You can't do that. You can't carry on the Sabbath. And so they were very offended by this. They called him an insurgent. He was causing the people to be confused. He's challenging our authority. Now the residents of Jerusalem know, therefore, that these Jewish religious leaders want to kill Rabbi Jesus. And so they say, wait just a second. He's right here. He's teaching publicly. He's not hiding. He's not in disguise. Good night if we see him and are hearing from him. Surely our religious leaders could see him, identify him, and arrest him. And so they say in verse 26, look, he's speaking publicly. And they, 
Their religious leaders are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ. That means Messiah. The rulers don't really know that he's, this Jesus is the Messiah, do they? You know what that's called? Sarcasm. Here's what they were getting at. They knew the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill this Jesus, get rid of him, because he was gaining in popularity, which means people would withdraw their support of the Jewish religious leadership and start following this rabbi Jesus. The residents of Jerusalem knew this, but they were perplexed. Why don't they, the religious leaders, do something about it? Right? I mean, he's right here in public. Then they sarcastically say, maybe what happened is that they were made privy to some new information about him, uh, causing them to conclude that he really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. Well, this is absolute sarcasm. They didn't believe that for one minute. They were offended by the passivity of their own religious leaders, and so they were very sarcastic about it. And so it says this in verse 27. However, we, you know, maybe our own leaders found out that he really is the Messiah, but we, however, know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ, the real one, may come, no one knows where he's from. So here's what they're saying. Even if our religious leaders have caved in and think he really is who he claims to be, which we don't believe they did, but even if they did, we know better we know where he's from. We know he was born in Bethlehem and, and was raised in Nazareth. You know what we know about him? We know he's an ordinary Jewish guy raised in a very ordinary place by very ordinary parents. Now, if we know that about him, he cannot be our Messiah. Why'd they say that? There was a Jewish tradition, unfounded though it may be, still it was characteristic of the day. The Jews believed when Messiah comes, it's going to be so shockingly and strikingly, so surprisingly, nobody's going to know where he came from. He's going to suddenly appear. He's going to descend from heaven, boom, uh, and the temple precincts and just blow away everybody. So if we know his origins, they say, he can't be the Messiah because you cannot know where the Messiah comes from. Therefore, since we know where Jesus comes from, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Can you see the reasoning? That's kind of what, what's going on. You know what? They're wrong. They think they know all they need to know about him. But all they know are tidbits of information. Kind of like people today. You, you and I would be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't heard of Jesus. Uh, Lord willing, some of us are going to go in less than a month to Israel. I dare you to find in Israel an Arab person or a Jewish person who hasn't heard of Jesus. And they know something about him, just like folks in the United States. I dare you to find someone who never heard of Jesus. And if they were to share with you what they know, it would be tidbits of information like this. But they don't really know him, do they? They don't know the essence of his nature. They, they may know bits and pieces and they may be privy to some facts with regard to his earthly experience, you know, Nazareth, Bethlehem, all that kind of thing. But they don't know of the virgin birth. They don't know of his pre-existence. They don't know he is God in the form of man. They don't know what he came to do. They don't know 
what he's coming back to do. They don't know he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. They don't know he's the king above all kings and the Lord above all pretenders to the throne. So as with the folks then, so too now, people think they comprehend fully who Jesus is when in fact they don't know him. And so in response to this, verse 28, Jesus cried out. That was a loud exclamation. It was an emotional outburst. Now, I didn't say he was out of control. I just say he was aroused. It wasn't a subtle, soft-spoken exclamation. He exploded like a volcano. Good night. He's the Messiah of these very people. He came for them. Their prophets, if they listened, told them about him. And now, so casually, they are dispensing with him, thinking we know fully who he is. He's just a carpenter's son. He can't be our savior. And so he cries out, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. They uh, insist that they know him. He's saying, you don't really know me. Your knowledge is limited. And the reason you don't know me is you don't know him who sent me. You don't have a relationship with God. But he says in verse 29, I know him. Why? Because I'm from him and he sent me. You realize before Jesus came here, and fleshed, he always was. I used to think uh, Jesus came into existence on Christmas. He was birthed, born, and there he was. I, I didn't get it. I see, I knew some facts about him, but I didn't know that he's pre-existent because he's God who has no beginning nor end. I didn't, realize, I, I didn't realize that he always existed. He only, at his birth, came here for us. He pierced our space-time dimension. He, being God, exists beyond space and time. He reduced himself, condescended, to take on the form of man in order to redeem sinful men and women. I didn't understand that about him. So before he came, before he was enfleshed, he was with the father from before time and therefore his knowledge of the father is based on direct experience they are uh, quickly dismissing him presuming their knowledge of things exceeds his but he's saying you don't even know the father but I have been with him from eternity past and he sent me so verse 30 they they were seeking to seize him now, who was the they not the Jewish religious leaders here the residents of Jerusalem. They're frustrated. And they're saying, we know it is in the intent of our religious leaders to arrest him and try him and, and murder him. Let's just participate with the process. Let's help them out because apparently they're not doing their job. And so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Folks, that's the third time we read that statement in John's gospel. The first time was at a wedding. His mother, they were running out of wine 
and his mother wanted him to, you know, jump through her hoops and uh, perform like a circus performer, manifest his capacity to deal with the issue. And remember what he said? He said, woman, my, my time has not yet come. His mother, though he was quite respectful of her, his mother uh, could not determine his timetable. The second time this kind of thing happened was when uh, his brothers, they're in Galilee and they're, they're getting ready to come south to Jerusalem for this feast, Feast of Tabernacles. And they say, hey, what an opportunity. When you go to the feast, pull off some magical miracles. You can do it. We saw you do it at the pools of Bethesda. You've lost a lot of followers there. This is a time to recoup your losses. And he said, there, my time has not yet come. So his mother would not determine his schedule. His brothers could not determine his schedule. Now for the third time we find out no crazed mob could determine his schedule. I mean, he's in the midst of these people. What is, from a human point of view, keeping them from accosting him, mugging him, beating him up? I'll tell you what it was. His father kept that from happening. How? I have no idea. Supernaturally. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Time for what? He is going to be delivered over. He is going to be abused, stripped naked, beaten, whipped. He's going to be pierced through, but not on the timetable of a crazed mob all in keeping with the divinely preordained plan set for him by his father. You know what I get from this? And this is so helpful, I hope, for us today. God is sovereign. I read the news. Why? I don't know. I just don't want you to know something I don't know. I think that's why. You know, so if you say, hey, Stuart, did you hear about? I want to be able to say, oh, sure. Because there's no other benefit in listening to the news anymore. And when you listen to the news, you find out things that shock and surprise you and disgust you. But when you think about the sovereignty of God, he, he doesn't have to read the news. He knows the end from the beginning. And all these things that are happening, which sometimes we're tempted to think uh, make the world an out-of-control place, it's not true because sovereign God is still seated on the throne and nothing happens according uh, to the free will of man. It's all a function of the sovereign will of God. So it says in verse 31, look at this, a little bit of a bright note in this fairly dark passage. But many of the crowd believed in him. Folks, it still happens. Many believed in him. People are still believing in Jesus. And they were saying, when the Christ, again, that means Messiah, or anointed one, when the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? These are very practical people. <clears throat> Perhaps a little spiritually shallow, but they're essentially saying, what more do we need to see? Look at the things the supernatural things he has done. The blind gain their sight, the lame walk. People are healed. Isn't this enough? This Messiah you're waiting for, could he possibly demonstrate more power from on high than this Yeshua, this Jesus? So based on his works, many believed. Well, here's what happened. Verse 32, the Pharisees, it's a particular uh, 
political, religious party in ancient Israel. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. They were not quite outspoken at this point. They were muttering uh, about this Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Ah, the Pharisees saw themselves to be the guardians of Jewish tradition. They realized something's going on. People, some, in spite of our threats, are believing in this Jesus. We have got to act quickly. Therefore, verse 33, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Folks, nothing they will do to him can interfere with what he came to do for them. He will complete what he came to do, and then he will return to the one who sent him to do it. It is the sovereignty of God. He says, therefore, you will not have your way. I'm operating according to a divinely ordained timetable, but in a little while, no longer will I be with you. He meant that literally. In fact, literally in six months, he'll be gone. This is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The next feast, during which time Jesus was crucified, is the Feast of Passover, down to this very day. We know the timetable between those two feasts is six months. They only have him for six months. No matter what would happen to him, he says, I'll be with you for a little while, and then I go to him who sent me. No matter what would happen to him, he had a God to go to, and it wouldn't be long. I hope I'm not uh, misapplying this. What I say to you and to me, if, if, if we're Christians, the same thing applies. If you are a Christian, no matter what may happen to you, you have a God to go to, and it won't be long. I don't know what may happen to us. We don't know from day to day what medical report we may get, what loved one might be involved in an accident, what form of anti-Christian persecution may victimize us. But I do know, as with our Savior, whom we follow, so too with us. We have a God to go to. In a little while, in the grand scheme of things, we will be gone. Goodbye, world, goodbye. We're just saying it. We have a God to go to. Whatever happens to us, we have a destination. It's a good one. Soon, we will be there with our Lord. Now, he says something in verse 34. This will be our last verse for tonight that I think is perhaps one of the most tragic statements in all of Scripture. You will seek me, Jesus said. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. That is the most tragic statement, it seems to me, in all the Bible. He spoke it to people who were not then seeking him, but he knew by anticipation there would be a time when they would. 
but it would be too late. There will come a time when it is too late. That's what he says. Once Jesus said, seek and you will find. Now he says, there will be a time when you will seek me and will not find me. Folks, those who hate being with Christ here on earth will not be with Christ in heaven. Why not? Because that would not be heaven for them. And God doesn't force it on those who don't want it. Those who hate the presence and reality of Christ here won't have to deal with it there. Because that would not, by definition, be heavenly for them. Good news. Sinners who bother you, torment you, and maybe even ridicule and persecute you. Good news, sinners, if you're a Christian, will not be able to follow you to heaven. Bad news, sinners will not be able to follow you to heaven. Which is why we've got to do everything we could to help those sinners find their way to heaven while there's still time. I hope uh, I'm not overdoing it by sharing with you a mere 40 words as is becoming my compulsion. And the only reason for it is I just want to offer you something that's a conversation starter with people who perhaps are on their way to eternal separation from Almighty God. Uh, so I like when God gives opportunity to simply say to folks, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross for all my sins in my place. I got it down to 40 words and I, I succeeded in memorizing it sort of. Sometimes it's a little shaky, but I have most of it. I would like to invite you to do the same so that you're always ready to bring up Jesus and make him the major point of conversation. People are talking about nonsense today. <laughs> we should not be reluctant to share the gospel. With who? Everyone. Every single person. Folks, sinners will not be able to follow us to heaven, but we are sinners saved by grace. Why not them? We have to offer, therefore, the gospel of grace. Well, here's what happened. The Jews, verse 35, now here, this is the Jewish religious leaders. They said to one another, they didn't speak to him, they spoke to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him. He's not interested in going to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Here's what they're saying. It's sarcasm. <laughs> they're saying, what's he talking about? He's going someplace where we cannot go. Well, the only place we can think of where we won't go is amongst the Jews in the diaspora or dispersion, the Jews living in Gentile nations. These rabbis said, we're not going there. The only other option, they said, is maybe he's going to go off to these Gentile nations 
to actually teach Gentiles. Are you kidding me? What kind of self-respecting rabbi would do something like that? They said, we wouldn't do it. Therefore, maybe that's what he's talking about. Can you see that though they were the religious elite in ancient Israel, they were spiritually blind and dull. So too, so many of the leaders of world religions today, they really know how to dress it up. (laughs) But they don't seem to be attuned to spiritual truth and reality. And here, can you, can you see that statement, verse 35? The Jews then said to one another, folks, they, they didn't speak to Jesus. The Jews, the religious leaders, spoke to one another. I close with this. Look at here. There has to be a time for each of us when we speak directly to Jesus. There has to be a time, if you wish to be saved, there has to be a time when you and I stop listening to what people say about him, stop hearing about him, stop talking about him, and start talking to him. Have you ever had that direct conversation with this Jesus who, although he existed from before time, came to earth to make himself available to us? What kind of direct conversation must you have in order to start communion with him that lasts on into eternity, it has to be like this. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. It has to be said to Jesus. You could say that to me, but I don't have any power to do a thing about it. Why would you want to confess it to me? You have to confess it to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I confess, you know what that means? I agree, I agree with what you call sin and what you call a sinner, and that's me. I have sinned in thought, word, and even deed. I confess that. And Lord Jesus, I directly say to you, that's a problem because you don't sin, which means my sin has erected a barrier between us. And that accounts for why my life is not going very well. How could it go well when I'm apart from you, the giver of life? You have to have that conversation. It has to be direct. Can't be through anyone else here. No pastor, no priest, no rabbi. No, it has to be direct. You talk amongst yourselves all you want, but it'll just get you nothing. You have to have a direct conversation. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It separated me from you, and then you have to say, and I believe you're the Savior. That means you stood in the gap between me and your Father. And you stood with arms outstretched really wide through which nails impaled you to a cross. And that was all for me. And you have to say something to him. Yeah, I I believe you did that for me. And then in so doing, you have to tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe you settled the score so that I no longer need to be seen a debtor in the eyes of God. I actually could become a son or a daughter, a forgiven one, And you have to tell him, good night, it must have been horrific for you to go through all that you went through. I don't have to add to it in any way. It's enough, it's enough. And maybe you know enough to even say to him, didn't you say, Lord Jesus, it is finished? The debt has been paid, mine, the one I owe, it has been finished. Then you have to have a direct conversation. Then you have to say, then then, then you say to him, you say, I am a sinner, you are the savior. Then you have to say, Would you be my savior? That word, that personal possessive 
pronoun is vital. You may know facts about Jesus. People say he's the Savior. That's not good enough. He has to be your Savior. You have to say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Save me from the penalty, the power, and one day even the presence of sin. Save me from all that, Lord Jesus. Have you had that direct personal conversation with him? If you have, you are a Christian, and one day <laughs> you'll say, goodbye, world. <laughs> goodbye. But if you haven't had that conversation, I encourage you, even in the few moments we have remaining, you can do so right there where you are. Oh, God, I've sinned. Oh, God, you've come to save me. Oh, God, save me. You could have that conversation. And then to clarify it, we'd love to meet with you at the end of the service in the Connection Center to answer your questions and help you to know where to go from here.